Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacalariatis, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Nina Jankowitz, a disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center. We'll be talking to Nina about her new book, How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Nina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Nina, you are not merely a detached academician in this book. You've mixed in about 5 to 10% memoir and travelogue by my calculations. So can you start by telling our listeners how you came to write this book and why you thought it was important to be an active presence in the story? Yeah, so... One of the things I wanted to achieve with this book is to make it accessible to normal people who aren't steeped in the things that I research every day. And often tech conversations in particular can be really impenetrable to you know anybody with a passing interest in this topic or even in, in national security writ large. I mean, I've been in plenty of conversations um, in Washington where people who aren't super tech savvy uh, have have trouble following this stuff. So I wanted to bring the humanity out, um, not only in the people who uh, were fighting disinformation in places like Estonia and Ukraine, but I wanted to um, make sure that they could identify, my readers could identify with those folks as well. And the way to do that seemed to be to, to put myself in the story. And I think given my background, um, which is kind of how I came to write the book, I was living and working in Ukraine as a Fulbright Clinton Public Policy Fellow at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Ukraine in 2016 and 2017. Um, it, it, my perspective really just developed thanks to that experience, thanks to experiences working for the National Democratic Institute, in some cases, thanks to my own ethnic background. And I felt like I really couldn't tell this story without, um, without you know, voicing it in my own, my own way. And so, in effect, you were on the front lines of the information war, or you arrived there before you realized that you were in the middle of one. <laughs> well, uh, not exactly. So I, I I worked for NDI for a couple of years out of graduate school, and I was working on Russia and Belarus programs uh, back then. And it was as USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, um, was asked to leave Russia and NDI, which received USAID funding. Uh, became known as an undesirable foreign organization by the Russian government. We were, we were labeled that way. Um, our staff were being harassed. Uh, there was a lot of propaganda about us. So clearly, like the information war already existed to some degree. It was much more focused on the Russian domestic space at that time. Um, and when I left NDI to work uh, as a Fulbright Fellow in Ukraine, I knew I wanted to focus my work uh, at least a little bit on on disinformation. Um, and when I got there, it became clear to me that this was something that not only was fascinating to me, but that we really needed the United States that is needed a better understanding of the problem. And so I kind of reoriented my grant to be all about how the United States and other Western countries were responding to the threat of Russian disinformation in Ukraine. Um, And then, of course, the 2016 election happened, revelations about Russian interference came to light, and uh, it became more important than ever. And that's been the last four years of my life, (laughs) in a nutshell. Well, great. Let's let's start simple, or, or maybe complex. How do you define the information war? So what is being fought over and how? So I think this is a war that we entered into unknowingly. Uh, we we had a lot of 
kind of uniquely American hubris, I would say, in our understanding of the information environment and our adversaries, Russia, China, Iran inclusive, uh, all kind of realized that they could conduct influence campaigns um, and try to undermine democratic processes and, and you know, uh, political inclinations in adversarial nations without us being engaged in the type of kinetic conflict that uh, everyone is, is attempting to avoid for a variety of reasons. A lot of people call this asymmetric warfare. Um, and so it is hard to, to say what's being fought over precisely. I mean, I could be trite and say truth is being fought over, um, but I actually don't think that that is, is entirely true. It's more about global influence, uh, a seat at the global negotiating table and the reputation of some of the Western democracies, um, opposite which nations like Russia and China find themselves. I think that is more the the goal. The end goal is undermining that that influence than gaining their own influence, if that makes sense. Got it. The subtitle of the book is Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. But in the introduction, you you express some frustration with it. Why? <laughs> well, I don't love the term fake news. Um, it has become a term that is used more as a pejorative or as the butt of jokes. Uh, of course, you know, former President Trump liked to use it to describe any piece of news that was politically inconvenient for him. And we've seen other uh, other leaders like Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in the Philippines all use similar rhetoric after President Trump started doing it. And I also think it misrepresents the problem. We tend to think of fake news, or I think the general public tends to think of it as, as something that is actually just a cut and dry fake, something that's totally made up, a picture that's man manipulated, et cetera, et cetera, when in reality, the most successful disinformation is stuff that is grounded in real life grievances. It, it holds an element, if not a large element of truth. And it might just be that the facts are presented in a misleading way. Of course, there might be, you know, some conspiratorial information presented there, but it's based on something that really resonates with people. And, uh, and that is, you know, true to them. That's why they find it appealing. And I think that has also, you know, really undermined our response. We've lost a lot of time conceiving of this phenomenon as fake news, because if it's fake, we can just play what I call whack-a-troll and delete the offending content, delete the offending accounts. Um, it's much harder to deal with disinformation that is really based in in these societal fissures that Russia in particular has gotten very good at identifying and exploiting. Well, I love whack a troll and I'm excited to see it pop up in a bill on Congress at some point in the future. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> so you look at six case studies in this book, Estonia, Georgia, Ukraine slash the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, and then the United States. We're not going to have the time to go into all of them in detail, but I want you to at least give our listeners a quick overview. So how would you grade the response of each of these states in the information war? Sure. So we'll start, uh, we'll go in the order that they are in the book, which is roughly chronological. Um, we start in Estonia in 2007, where Estonia is the uh, target of a cyber attack and also what I call a beta disinformation attack. It was kind of pre-social media in Estonia, so it was much more based on 
Russian language um, state media. Uh, but anyway, they 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 figured it out. I think you know, for a small country, Estonia has done remarkably well. I would definitely give them an A. Um, and that's because they've invested in people in their response. It's not just about playing whack a troll or securing, you know, the cyber environment. Then we moved to Georgia uh, from 2008 when the Russia-Georgia war happened, the five-day war, all the way to today, um, where it's a very different government in place in Georgia, one that uh, rolled back a lot of the restrictions that had secured the Georgian information space after the five-day war. Georgia is doing pretty poorly right now, I would say. They've got some government strategies in place. Um, but unfortunately, the kind of domestic information environment is being exploited by foreign and domestic disinformers. And uh, as a result, I would say I'd probably give them a C minus. I, I hesitate to fail anyone. I do think there are people in this country that are trying. So let's let's give them a C minus for now. Uh, and very quickly, you were yeah. actually in Georgia during a protest, right? Yes, yes. That was serendipitous. I, I went there uh, to do some final research as I was finishing up the book, finish up some interviews. And um, as I was there uh, in the middle of my time there, a, a an incident of Russian influence, I guess, erupted into protest wherein a, uh, a visitor who was a Russian member of parliament was at the Georgian parliament for a conference on orthodoxy. Um, and this man was invited to sit in the speaker of the Georgian parliament's chair. And this created this instantaneous protest outside of parliament. Um, thousands of thousands of Georgians were there. Uh, the Georgian government cracked down on the protest quite violently. Some people lost eyes and were pepper sprayed and things like this. Um, and it was just interesting to see how even, you know, at that point, 11 years after uh, Russia had occupied part of Georgia, about 25% of Georgia, that Georgians still uh, were quite fiery in in their condemnation of Russian influence in their country. So, so I threw you off track there, but in summary, <laughs> a C minus for Georgia. Although the the average might have been raised by your own contributions to the protests there. <laughs> I, I was just an observer. <laughs> Don't want to spread any disinformation, but yes, it was an interesting time to be there. Um, then we moved to Poland. So I actually wrote this chapter last because it was quite difficult to tackle, but it's in the middle of the book, uh, and it looks at um, the time period from the 2010 plane crash that killed uh, President. Lech Kaczynski and 100 members of the Polish political elite. Uh, that plane, of course, went down in Russia outside of Smolensk. Uh, and it tracks kind of the evolution of Polish politics and sort of the anti-democratic changes we're seeing in Poland today. Um, and there we, again, are dealing with a domestic disinformation environment that is allowing foreign exploitation. Uh Again, I would probably be forced to give Poland a C minus or maybe a D, um, given <laughs> given the restrictions on freedom of the media um, and the crackdown on the public broadcaster, which itself spreads disinformation sometimes. Um, then we move to Ukraine uh, or the Netherlands. I mean, the, the chapter kind of ping pongs back and forth um, in 2016 when uh, there was an uh, association agreement that needed to be signed between the European Union and Ukraine, and the Netherlands decided to put it to a referendum. And what developed was an opportunity for Russia to not only undermine Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic aspirations, but in one fell swoop, it was able to also undermine 
European Union cohesion, uh, because this was, of course, a project that the EU had been working toward for a long time. And most Dutch are famously uh, Eurosceptic. So it was an interesting canvas on which Russia could paint its disinformation campaigns. Um, This is an interesting one because we often hear you know, that uh, we can just fight disinformation, we can beat disinformation if we tell a better story about democracy or about NATO or about the European Union, what, what you know, insert the uh, international concept that you, that you want to insert there. Um, I think in this case, you know, Ukraine tried really hard, but it was up against uh, much, much more powerful enemies, not just Russia, but but folks who understandably, in some cases, had a, a poor opinion of Ukraine in the Netherlands. Um, I would give them a C. I wouldn't wouldn't give them a C minus. I think they understand the threat. They're trying their best to to counter it. But, you know, they're also fighting a war and um, dealing with the historical memory of, uh, you know, three decades worth of corruption and uh, poor headlines about Ukraine. So they're trying Um, And then we finally come to the Czech Republic, Uh, another interesting case study. They're one of the only countries that had, at the time I started researching this book, um, a unilateral kind of office dedicated to countering domestic disinformation and foreign to some some degree. It's called the Center Against Terrorism and Hybrid Threats. Um, And even though they recognize the problem and they have, you know, an apparatus set up to deal with it, uh, they're another another country that has a domestic disinformation problem coming from some of the highest offices in the land, and also uh, the process surrounding the setup for this center got kind of bungled, which uh, squandered some precious support from the public. So I'd give them probably a B minus. Or perhaps a C plus there. <laughs> now, now, first of all, I realize I need to apologize for, to our listeners because I, I myself forgot to include Poland. So Poland is, in fact, a case study. Don't be Oops, surprised. Even... <laughs> <laughs> Don't be surprised realize. if uh, you pick up the book and find Poland there. But, but very quickly, I wanted to ask. I think it was the Czech Republic where, in their governmental anti uh, or counter disinformation office, there was a noble but somewhat unsavory figure leading those efforts. Do I have that right? <laughs> so he's not actually in the office. Uh, he is a, a think tanker who was involved in its setup. But yes, uh, he, to some degree, had sullied the center's reputation by association. Got it. Okay, well, we don't need to get into detail, but people who are read interested to read more. the exactly, please read the book. Um, okay, great. Um, so to, to summarize there, I think I tallied a one in five record against Russia. Is that how you scored it overall? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. I mean, there are some noble efforts, but I would say the, the Estonians are the only ones who have a truly um, a holistic solution operating at the moment. My dog is growling. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. Um, great. So it seemed to me like every victim country in this book has a come to Jesus moment where they wake up to the dangers posed by Russia. What role do... Sorry. (laughs) There he is. (laughs) Jake. Jakey. It's okay. You don't need to bark. (laughs) That was an impressive, uh... Information campaign waged against your dog. There's probably a dog across the street and he's angry about it. His hackles are up. It's pretty amazing. Jake, Jake, 
He refuses to not be in my office with me, though, so. <laughs> it's very cute. <laughs> okay, buddy. It's all right. <laughs> okay. All right. I think we're done now. We're done. Okay. So let me restart that question. Yes. It seems like every victim country in this book has a come-to-Jesus moment where they wake up to the dangers posed by Russia. So what role do threat perception and traditional security concerns play in shaping the information war? Well, I think this is a really interesting question. I think we've just seen it play out in the United States in, in January 2021, actually. Um, there is it's It's very difficult because the internet is so new to understand uh, and really pinpoint when there's going to be a spillover effect into your society, when something that's just silly memes on the internet suddenly becomes uh, something that's much more serious that has an effect on public safety or on you know the functioning of your democracy, and you're right. Every every country here, to some degree, even those who you know really understand um, what Russia is capable of, like Poland, for instance, underestimate the threat or at least have um, a, a skewed perception of how it works, uh, how how disinformation works, and in particular Russian disinformation. Um, and so I think this is something that's developing. I think this is why telling these stories is so important. You know, it's it's one thing to write a policy paper about all of the tactics and tools that Russia uses to to conduct its disinformation campaigns. But until we take a long, hard look in the mirror, I think that it's going to be difficult for many Western democracies to accurately predict when uh, when these threats are going to become exigent. I would argue they they already are. And to some degree, we've seen a shift over the past four years as I've been you know, researching, writing, and publishing the book in the acknowledgement of these threats. More countries are doing things like the Czech Republic has done and setting up centers to deal with these issues. And, and more of them are recognizing it in their national security doctrine. Now, that doesn't always mean that they produce a coherent policy afterward. Um, but another thing I'm hopeful for as you know, the, the new administration settles in here in Washington is that um, the United States will start to lead a little bit more on this. Uh, we've we saw very little attention to this, of course, under the Trump administration, and even you know active denial that Russian influence was a problem. Um, as a result, countries like the UK have kind of filled the U.S. leadership vacuum, and they've done a good job. But the U.S. has a certain convening power that I'm hoping we recover and start to be a little bit more active and start to really shore up our allies in pushing again, back against these uh, anti-democratic online threats and, and recognizing them, sharing information, which, again, is something that I think the, the U.S. has unique capabilities in. Mm -hmm. Now, I invite you to push back against the following characterization, but <laughs> in my mind, the book starts with the presumption that Russia fires the first volleys in the information war. Is that how Russia sees it? And if not, is there any truth to their information grievances? Ah, yeah. So I think Russia does have a sense of grievance that it carries around. I don't think it is grounded in reality. So I'll, I'll speak a little bit about my experience working for the National Democratic Institute, which I talked about earlier, which was really my first exposure to, um, you know, in the real world of, of Russian online 
information influence. Um, I, the Russian Federation saw NDI's work as kind of an impingement on its sovereignty. It saw it as meddling um, and often would bring up, you know, NDI, IRI, and the National Democratic, or sorry, the National Endowment for Democracy um, when we first saw allegations of Rus- Russian meddling before the 2016 election. Um, but what, what organizations, these NGOs that are, yes, American, U.S.-based, and, and in part congressionally and, and government-funded, what they do is very different than the covert, misleading uh, information campaigns that Russia runs. Yes, NDI, IRI, and other organizations are attempting to help uh, folks with democratic inclinations, and I mean small d democratic inclinations in Russia, uh, but they do so openly. They would very happily have you know participants at their trainings from the United Russia Party, Putin's party, if if they wanted to show up. Um, and in fact, I believe they did in in some cases. And so, not necessarily in a friendly fashion, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but but the idea that this was meddling, that you know anyone was being duped that Russians were being led astray. I mean, that's just not true. It's patently untrue. Um, So that's in kind of the civil society area. Russia always points to things like uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, or Voice of America to say, well, you do online influence and information operations too. But uh, the difference between those and, you know, RT and Sputnik or any of the other Russian information operations is, again, uh, those are actually journalism. Um, <laughs> and what RT and Sputnik do certainly is not. And, uh, and you know, online trolling is not journalism either. It's not not an information operation. It's, it's I would say, the opposite of it. It's the, you know, pursuit of transparent and, and open discourse based on facts. Um so I think Russia Russia has certainly this this sense of grievance. Um, it it becomes more understandable when you look at Putin, who believes that you know the fall of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest geopolitical disasters, um, and he feels that very personally, right? So he's trying to get Russia its seat back at the global negotiating table. Uh, but I don't I, I don't see I think it's a false equivalence to say the open programming that the United States supports through uh, its democracy support programs is anything like these covert trolling operations, which the Kremlin, of course, doesn't even want to own up to. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the uh, more effective tools, in my mind, at least, that the disinformers in this story deploy is some variation on gaslighting. So doing something provocative and then turning around and calling those who speak out against those actions crazy or hypocritical. Uh, How can the uh, disinformation or the counter disinformation uh, good guys in this story combat those types of accusations? And I'm curious if you thought there were any um, examples that you covered in the book of uh, countries or agencies and offices doing this particularly well? This is one of the really difficult things about counter disinformation work. And it's something that a lot of strategic communications professionals spend a ton of their time on (laughs) um, trying to decide how best to counter message uh, when gaslighting or, or when, you know, these campaigns more generally are, uh, are started and there's there's a little bit of a Streisand effect calculation there. Um, <laughs> essentially, you know, certain campaigns 
are better left untouched. Um, you don't want to respond directly. You don't want to engage because it will just give it more oxygen. Uh, I think that is one of the reasons we saw so much reticence toward engaging with or or highlighting some of the movements that were responsible for the riots at the Capitol on uh, mm-hmm. January 6th. Um, it's a question that I don't really have a good answer to. <laughs> I, uh, I myself, you know, in engaging with, with some loved ones and, and friends who have gone to the more conspiratorial side of the spectrum, although I wouldn't really say that conspiracies have one side or another, they've, <laughs> they're, you know, in a dark corner somewhere on the internet. Um, yeah, it, of course I want to imp- approach them with empathy and try to understand where they're coming from, but uh it's it's extraordinarily difficult when they are you know living in a completely alternate reality and believe i am some part of you know a deep state pedophile ring or something like that um and i think the same thing is true except it's a perhaps a little easier i can't believe i'm saying this wow a little easier to fight back against uh you know state sponsored trolling and gaslighting mm-hmm. um because the the motivation for it is is so much clearer. So the things that I think work, um, and I know we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but things like what Alexei Navalny does in exposing corruption, uh, open source investigative techniques that pull back the curtain to a normal internet user and say, not only can you do this too, but, but here's how we did this inve- investigation to build that trust in legitimate media and, you know, legitimate narratives rather than the conspiratorial ones, which of course are appealing for, for other reasons. That's probably the best thing, but that is hard. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of money. Um, and I think we've lost a lot of valuable time not investing in techniques like that and instead, uh, you know, putting all our eggs in like the fact-checking whack-a-troll basket. So the anti-malign influence warriors faced a whole host of challenges like the ones we just in uh, outlined mm-hmm. two more that stood out to me uh first how difficult it is to quantify or measure foreign influence and second how difficult it is to to assess impact which mm-hmm. is overlapping but not fully contiguous with measuring the campaigns themselves so how important is deniability to the success of these operations and can we overcome it Yeah. Increasingly, uh, we have been seeing the use of information laundering, especially as, you know, Western democracies have become savvy to the fact that, uh, you know, they should be cracking down on clearly fake troll and bot accounts, um, this sort of thing. So instead, what we'll see malign actors do, and uh, indeed, this is what we saw Russia do ahead of the 2020 election, was plant narratives and try to launder them into the mainstream information space. Rather than using bots and trolls, they'd use Facebook groups to amplify these narratives so that, um, you know, real Americans were the ones that were spreading them uh, around by and large. Um, So that makes it really difficult, right? Uh, It gives the Kremlin or whatever other malign actor you you want to pin something on uh, a lot of plausible deniability because they're saying, oh, it's just authentic Americans or authentic Estonians sharing that story. We don't don't know what you're talking about. You know, maybe the original came from us, but we can't help that people uh, believe the reporting that we put out there. 
Um, and it's those are the things that are extraordinarily hard to pin down and quantify as well. Um, I do think there is room for more research and uh, understanding of, of how these narratives travel, how fast and how far. Unfortunately, and we probably won't get into much of a conversation about social media regulation today, uh, unfortunately, the, the platforms don't give us a lot of that data. So what we do have, we have to reconstruct or, you know, when they decide to open up uh, all of that engagement data for us, um, we can play with it. But we don't have a full picture right now. We only get the snippets that the big tech platforms tend to, uh, I think, you know, selectively edit to some some degree. And that makes it really hard to quantify, especially when, you know, there are people in the country who still believe uh, that that malign actors aren't engaging in these sorts of activities on social media. So I'm hoping for transparency and oversight in whatever uh, whatever social media regulation bill comes to pass in the future. Throughout our conversation, we've kind of been dancing around the question of how much this book, this story is really about Russia. So at least when I was reading your work, I sensed a kind of double-sided exasperation with the breathless hyperbole about the Russian threat on one hand and kind of complete disregard concerning the Kremlin on the other. So how much of this problem is is Russian and how much of it is native to uh, the so-called victim countries in this story? Yeah, um, this is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. And I, frankly, I've gotten a lot of uh, flack from other people in the counter disinformation community for my opinions on this sometimes. I did not set out to write a book that included so much about domestic politics in each of these countries. I, I thought I was going to be writing about Russian influence and, you know, uh, that I would give a little bit of background. But, but really, um, what we find in all of these case studies, as well as many others where Russia has been successful in, in launching influence campaigns, is that what Russia's doing is identifying, as I, I mentioned before, fissures in our society and weaponizing them, um, pitting them against us or, or amplifying them, tearing us a little bit further apart so that our democracies function uh, less well. Let's not say less well. Let's say worse, the proper word. <laughs> they're functioning <laughs> worse than, than they're supposed to. Uh, and that buoys Putin on a number of of stages. It gives him, you know, notoriety that he doesn't deserve because uh, with this asymmetric warfare, you know, we're talking about Putin all the time. It kind of puffs him up in that that sense. It gives him notoriety at home. A lot of Russians uh, approve of this sort of behavior if they think it exists at all. Um, and certainly when they see protests uh, and, and other unrest in the streets here, that that feels Putin's what about us rhetoric at home as well. Um, and also, you know, a distracted United States or Estonia or Poland or any other country that that these campaigns are launched in uh, is better for Putin because he can launch his own kind of adventurist foreign policy in his near abroad and and even farther beyond that. So, yes, Russia, uh, Russia is launching these campaigns. But we can't just blame everything on the Russian bear hiding under the bed, right? The the main themes that we've seen in Russian disinformation in the United States are about racism and economic inequality um, and gun rights, you know, hot button issues that divide Americans. So if we want to fix 
Russian disinformation. Yeah, we should we should sanction Russia for meddling in our election. We should educate Americans about uh, about all the the ills of online information campaigns. But we should also attempt to repair the fissures in our societies that bad actors like Russia exploit. And I think that's really difficult for Americans to admit. A, that we we have problems. Hopefully that's getting less difficult for us to admit after the last four years. But B, um, that, you know, you can't solve every national security problem uh, in the, the national security realm. I think it, it really makes a lot of NATSEC professionals uncomfortable to think that they need to be involved with the Department of Education or the National Endowment for Humanities. Or that something like investing in public media here in the United States makes us a more resilient, stronger democracy, uh, and that has an effect on our national security as well. All those things are are pretty foreign, uh, not just in America. I've encountered the same resistance in other countries as well. Um, but it's it's absolutely a as much as this is a foreign policy problem, it is a. It's a domestic issue as well, and it in, encompasses many of the most pressing and, and most divisive social issues of our time. So, so Nina, I didn't prepare you for this, but <laughs> I completely agree with your approach to this issue, and I want to help you draw it out for the listeners. And to me, possibly the – I mean, all the cases were fascinating in this book, but the Estonia case in particular, and in particular because – uh, there's something valuable we can learn from it is a really fascinating story. So do you think you could tell the listeners a little bit about what happened there and, and how there was very clearly, uh, you know, Russia dipped its hand into this controversy, but there was this complex kind of domestic element to the conflict that is really vital to understanding the story and what the Russians sought to achieve and, and how they did it. Yeah, the the short version of the story is, you know, uh, Russia foments discord in Estonia among ethnic Russians, makes cyber attack happen, and everyone is mad. But <laughs> but but it's a lot more complex than that. So there was a thirty percent ish uh, Russian minority left over in Estonia after Estonia gained independence in nineteen ninety one. Uh, many of those folks then were forced essentially into blue collar jobs. They had been former military. Uh, who had moved to Estonia because that's where the Baltic fleet was based, the Soviet Baltic fleet, um, and suddenly found themselves not only, you know, without the jobs and prestige that they had before, uh, they they kind of became second-class citizens if they were citizens at all. You had to pass an Estonian language exam to get your Estonian citizenship. So many ethnic Russians had what they called gray passports, which would uh, it was kind of like an identity card in, in Estonia. It would also allow them travel to Russia, but they didn't really have full rights um, in any country. And as a result, you know, there were a lot of real grievances among the Estonian population. Um, these kind of came to a head around the removal of a statue called the Bronze Soldier, which was a statue to Soviet war dead in the middle of Tallinn, the capital. It was where a lot of people would gather on Soviet red letter days like May Day uh, or Victory Day. Um, and it was becoming a flashpoint for violence between Soviet nostalgists and uh, Estonian nationalists, let's, let's say. And a new government uh, in 2007 decided to move that statue out of the center of, of the, the city to a military cemetery 
And this is where Russia saw its opportunity. It had already been stoking these grievances uh, in the ethnic Russian population, which again were legitimate um, for many years. And by moving or pressing this issue of the moving of the statue and spreading some disinformation about it, you know, that uh, the the team that was removing the statue desecrated the remains of the tomb of the unknown soldier that was underneath, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they were able to create real public safety threats. There were riots for two days. One person died. And that was coupled with this cyber attack on Estonian institutions, banks, uh, the government, which of course votes very famously uh, online. Everybody cast their ballots online. Uh, they have quite good e-governance in Estonia. So um, a, a very rudimentary DDoS attack, distributed denial of service attack, was able to take down some of Estonia's main institutions. And that was when the Estonian government woke up. And yes, they invested in you know cyber defenses, of course, but they also invested in trying to integrate the Russian ethnic population a little bit better through education. Uh, they moved parts of the government to Narva, which is a city where a lot of Russian speakers and ethnic Russians live. Um, there was a, a real investment in, in trying to heal that fissure in society. And it's not totally healed. I mean, they, they had a resurgence in uh, far-right political parties recently, some of which had allied themselves with uh, Russian factions in parliament. Um, but it's something that they're actively working towards and they recognize that it takes a whole of society effort to combat disinformation. Not to lose the forest for the trees, but am I rem remembering correctly that the Estonian government moved the statue in the dead of night, which kind of <laughs> created the impression of, you know, some type of wrongdoing? Yeah. So they kind of had to do that. Um, there was this group called the Night Watch, which was connected in some ways to Russian intelligence. And they decided that they had to move the statue in the middle of the night because uh, these folks had been guarding it night after night. And it was kind of a now or never moment. Um, I think in retrospect, I did interview the Minister of Defense who was involved in moving the statue. And I think, you know, he has a, a few regrets about the communications uh, elements that, <laughs> that went on that night. And certainly I've, I also interviewed some former members of parliament, one who represented uh, the Russian party. Um, and she she felt like it was a huge affront to the the ethnic Russian population. So it's it's about thinking about how we communicate, too. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of this playing out. Uh, not only in the U.S. response to COVID-19, but but in other countries as well, um, transparency and you know treating people democratically uh, in all senses of the wor word is incredibly important when attempting to dispel disinformation, right? Because if we don't do that, we lose trust in institutions, and uh, what happens is then you don't have a trusted messenger who can combat or debunk the disinformation that's bubbling up. It becomes a, a really terrible double-edged sword, or as we say in Russian, a, a never-ending circle, closed circle. <laughs> you alluded to this earlier, but can you give a quick overview of the central factors in the corrosion of the inter information environments here in the West as you see it? There are so many. Um, and the more I think about this problem, the broader it seems to get every time. Um <laughs> Uh, well, I'll start with local news because we haven't really talked about media a lot. Um, one of the things that I think all of our Western democracies need to invest more in, but especially the United States, we've been particularly abysmal on this front, is public media. Um, 
I think, you know, in a lot of the countries that are doing a little bit better in countering disinformation, they have robust not only public media, but local media, which really is the connective tissue between people and their capitals or the large cities and the things going on there. And as I'm sure many of the listeners of this podcast know, we have in the United States uh, really seen the the atrophying of local media. Um, there's very, very few accredited reporters for each state in the capital now. Uh, they're all, you know, either reporting off the news wires or relying on national coverage, which isn't going to take into account, you know, the concerns of a farmer in in Iowa or uh, somebody on an oil rig in Texas. And I think, you know, that's why we see a lot of the the lack of trust in the media right now is in large part due to uh, to due to the fact that the local media scene is is just really deteriorating. So that's part of it. Um you know, a lot of these issues are governance issues. We've seen, I think, uh, a, an increase in polarization and gridlock in government over the past decade or so. And when people don't see uh, anything happening in government, any change happening that then trickles down and benefits them, I think they have a hard time trusting in the democratic process and the idea that it's supposed to work for them. Uh, so that's a big problem. Obviously, the rise of social media has an effect on on local media and uh, and public media and in general, you know, any news organization. But there's also a lot of um, infrastructure factors related to social media that undermine democracy. Uh, social media platforms in general, the ones that are algorithmically based, like Facebook and Twitter and TikTok, YouTube, of course, as well. Uh, they show you the content that you are more likely to engage with. And the most engaging content is often the most enraging content. And so disinformation, which we know runs on emotion and real grievances, is going to rise to the top of the feed where the trustworthy, uh, more nuanced information is going to sink to the bottom. And that infrastructure, of course, is driven by cash. The companies uh, are, are trying to sell ads and keep you know, you scrolling through your newsfeed in order to keep eyeballs on ads um, and keep you clicking on content so it can learn more about you, so it can sell you more ads. It's, again, one of these uh, really terrible closed circle situations. Um, and we, we need some regulatory, uh, regulatory assistance here to put bumpers on this bowling alley because we're not, not going in a good direction at the moment. Um, And then finally, you know, I think especially here in the United States, this is less true in some countries in Europe, there is a lack of uh, awareness in information literacy and civics. And so much disinformation is is spread simply because people don't really know better. Um, We know for a fact that most older adults are the ones that are most susceptible to disinformation. And that's because they're used to having gatekeepers on their information environments. And they think of Facebook the same way that they think of the nightly news when they were growing up. Um, So we got to reach older adults somehow, but there's also a ton of disinformation that has to do with the democratic process. So some basic civics could help. And this is one of the main conclusions of the book. I think that a lot of these countries, the ones that have made progress are investing in people. It's about equipping people with the tools they need to navigate an increasingly crowded, increasingly treacherous information environment. You wrote this book before the election and before the assault on the Capitol. How 
have the events of the last few months and, and the last month in particular affected your assessment of the United States and perhaps even your broader argument in the book? Ah, <sighs> it's made me more pessimistic, John. <laughs> I mean, I I think it comes off in the end that I'm actually quite optimistic in the book, and it's been hard to find that optimistic op- optimism over the past couple of weeks. Um, I do a lot of media. I write a lot. I have been over the past four years, you know, engaging with these very topics that led armed insurrectionists to break into the Capitol and threaten lawmakers. Um, and in some ways, it feels like people like me and and my colleagues who have been writing about this for so long just went entirely unheeded. Um, you know, I, in October, I was testifying in front of the House House Intelligence Committee um, about misinformation and conspiracy theories, and I made the claim in my testimony that disinformation was dismantling democracy. And one of the representatives on the committee really took issue with that. I mean, I think he he was actually a Democrat, uh, which kind of shocked me. Um, and he took issue with the idea of regulation or oversight over social media. Um, he made a you know now familiar argument about freedom of expression, which I, I understand. Um, but I think we, again, that uniquely American hubris had has led us to believe that online harms cannot become offline harms. And so... Uh, it's it's been frustrating in a word. Um, has it changed my conclusions at all? I think it is exigent that we introduce some regulatory framework in in on social media in the United States much sooner than uh, I think many people would like or are ready for. I think we just we need to put some guardrails on this industry because it's, it is clear that they are not the self-regulation that they're pursuing is, is not keeping us safe. Um, and, you know, in terms of education, when we're talking about conspiracy theories like QAnon or the stop the steal movement, um, it is not going to work to de-radicalize people. And I think that's really what we need to pursue now, de-radicalization. It's important to invest in. We need to continue investing in it in schools and to the extent that we can reach voting age adults. Yes, we, we, it's important. I think everybody agrees that more informed people uh, are going to be responsible voters and good democratic citizens um, that are less likely to storm you know, federal buildings, for instance. But uh, in terms of the immediate threat and and digging us out of this hole, uh, I'm not. I don't have blinders on. I know that that education can't really help us there, and we're going to have to take again a long, hard look in the mirror. Um, think about the foreign threats to our information space, but understand that the the biggest, I would say, um, the biggest you know, fissure that we have right now, I mean, it's a gaping wound, um, is this polarization and, and we're going to need to solve it. And that is a, a national security issue, even though it has nothing to do with foreign countries at the moment. So the, you know, the basic architecture of the book certainly stands. Um, I, uh, I, I will have a paperback coming out in the fall, and I did write the preface uh, on Inauguration Day. <laughs> so it, it includes some of these observations and kind of some caveats for the conclusions of the book going forward. 
So I'm going to ask the following question with tremendous trepidation, which <laughs> it, it, it sounds what you just talked about was, was mainly the events at the Capitol themselves. I want to shift to the response to the events to the Capitol um, so much as that is apparent. It's still, in theory, the early days, although I think um, kind of opinions are settling about how serious or not uh, the Capitol riots were. So mm-hmm. how would you grade and assess our response to what happened on January 6th? Oh, I So I feel like there is not much um, that we have done right so far. Uh, I think the Biden administration is attempting to set a really unifying tone, and that's exactly what they should be doing. That being said, that's being completely undermined by folks in Congress who even the day of the riots themselves continued to push this absolutely baseless conspiracy theory that the election was stolen from President Trump. Um, And until, I would say this is one of the conclusions of the book that perhaps holds up most strongly in in the wake of the the riots, until our leaders recognize that, you know, we can condemn foreign disinformation to the cows come home, but it won't it won't make a difference unless we ourselves are not engaging in the tactics of disinformation. Um, then we're going to be continuing to fight this problem. And I think that's the the situation that we're in right now. We are having our own come to Jesus moment, to, to use your term. Um, and, uh, and we're going to need some real leadership. And hopefully, hopefully by, you know, a change in tone coming from the highest levels of government, um, we will start to see that slowly, but it's going to take action on both sides of the aisle. I often say that disinformation is not a partisan problem. It is a democratic problem. Again, small d. Uh, It affects the functioning of our democracy, as I think should be patently obvious to everyone uh, after January 6th. And, And hopefully we will, you know, start to see a little bit of nuance and, and understanding from Congress, uh, of, of that idea. Um, but as I, I said on another podcast with Kyra Zdahl and, and Molly Wood of Marketplace recently, they were like, don't hold your breath, Nina. So again, my, my optimism is perhaps uh, blinding me a little bit here, but, but we need that leadership. Um, and so right now, I, I think we're not there. There are some positive indicators, again, coming, coming from the new administration, but they need, they need that to be reflected on Capitol Hill as well. Well, I wanted to turn to two hopefully more optimistic topics before we wrap up. So first, (laughs) let's talk uh, Bellingcat, Navalny, and and Russia. Can you give our listeners, first of all, just an overview of what happened there and then offer some thoughts on whether there is anything we can learn from going on the information offensive in the way that Bellingcat and Navalny have? Sure. So Alexei Navalny is a popular opposition figure in Russia. He started out as a blogger and then started making YouTube investigations, uh, ran for mayor of Moscow in 2013 and came close to forcing a runoff. There was likely some funny business uh, and, and electoral fraud involved there. He's also had several court cases, politically motivated court cases against him. Um, that have barred him from seeking political office, uh, including a run for president in 2018. Most famously, or most recently now, I I suppose, uh, he was the latest target of a poisoning with a nerve agent known as Novichok. Um, He fell ill on a flight, a domestic flight in Russia, and 
It came out um, thanks to investigation from the open source uh, team at Bellingcat and Navalny's own team that uh, the the Russian government was attempting to to poison him, uh, had hoped he would die uh, on the plane. And luckily, you know, the, the plane was able to land and the, the folks at the hospital treated him or else he would have died. He was medevaced after some consternation and pushback uh, from the Kremlin to Germany where he recovered. And then um, just recently on the 17th of January, I believe, he came back to Russia only to be arrested for having uh, violated his parole um, based on this false charge in uh, in a politically motivated case. He was violating his parole, of course, because he was recovering in, in Germany after the Kremlin had poisoned him. Um, so the whole thing is a bit farcical. Uh, they took him away, didn't give him access to a lawyer, had a sham trial in a local police station near the airport where he had landed, and he is now in uh, pretrial detention for this parole violation. And there have been uh, there have been multiple protests. There's about to be some more protests uh, in the final week of January in Russia, which, you know, if last weekend is any indication, they will be spread out across the country and uh, draw, you know, an impressive number of people. Um, also, interestingly, Navalny just released another investigation, this time targeting Putin himself. In the past, Navalny's investigations have dealt with other oligarchs and figures in the security services, but he has, he has usually left Putin himself out of the investigation. And this this investigation uh, alleges that a, a an enormous palace has been built for Putin and over the course of two hours takes the, the viewer through all of its crazy rooms and things like that. Uh, Putin alleges it's not related to him. And, uh, <laughs> and Navalny, uh, Navalny remains in, in jail. Um, what can these investigations tell us? Uh, certainly that information is, is power, um, that truth is power and that when faced these, when these corrupt regimes are faced with, uh, needing to confront that they, they certainly are challenged. I, I don't see, it's going to take a lot for there to be real political change in Russia, but, um, this has been this whole movement has been going on for a number of years now. Um, Navalny has been popular for over a decade. And so I think over time, uh, because the Kremlin seems unable to keep a full grip and and fully silence Navalny, uh, and certainly has a huge group of people supporting him now, it's going to be hard to tamp this down. But I don't think we're going to see like violent change or uh, instantaneous change in Russia anytime soon. Um, although Russians deserve it, right? They deserve to have a voice at the ballot box. They deserve real choice on their ballots. Um, they deserve a government that isn't stealing from them. And um, and I hope that they get it soon. And certainly watching this all happen is, uh, is inspiring as it is frightening. It, it really is an incredible story. And I encourage anybody who's listening who's not familiar with it to catch up on it as soon as they can. Um, all right. Uh, last question before we go. Nina, you recently published some research on gender-based disinformation in the United States. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you found? 
Sure, and I, I don't think this will be a particularly optimistic note to end on, but um, we looked at 13 candidates for public office, not only here in the United States, but we also did kind of a, a quick case study on candidates in Canada, New Zealand, and the UK. Um, 13 candidates, six social media platforms over two months in 2020, and we found over 30, 336,000 pieces of gender-based abuse and disinformation coming from about 190,000 users. Uh, it's just a drop in the in the proverbial bucket when you think about the fact that it was a short time period and just a few candidates. 78% of those uh, pieces of abuse were targeted at Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, we also found that a lot of the women of color who are running for public office are subject to compounded attacks. And we found um, frankly, which is something I've been following for, for a, a number of years now since I started the research for my book, that uh, state-based actors also use gender-based tropes and disinformation in their own disinformation and propaganda uh, in order to undermine Western countries. So this is not only an issue that has democratic implications, right? Because when you know little girls see Kamala Harris getting attacked online, they're going to reconsider if they want to engage in politics, if they want to engage in public facing careers in the future, and not just girls, but women, I might add. Um, but this is also a national security issue. Our adversaries are using endemic misogyny in the United States against us. Uh, a lot of people don't like that. That's how I framed it. Um, but it's the truth. And if, if you, you doubt that, you can talk to some women who have been targeted by state-sponsored media, uh, sponsored by Russia, China, and Iran, and, and you know, ask them how they feel, uh, if they feel safe to express their voices online, because I think it's becoming clear that that this is one of the biggest challenges to really achieving a fulsome, you know, functioning, uh, truly democratic system here in the United States. Well, I didn't mean to leave us on a, on a sour <laughs> note, but the research, of course, is really important. You can't fix the problem until you diagnose it. Uh, I would have loved to get in deeper to that and several aspects of the book. But uh, if you want to do that, then I encourage our leaners, uh, listeners excuse me, to check out Nina's uh, book and her research. So, Nina, thank you for coming on the pod. It is my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.